welcome to this week's sermon from C3 Church Narara. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information or to contact us, visit c3church.narara.net. Thank you. Oh, please be seated. <laughs> Thank you, Pastor Chris, Pastor Ruth, for yeah being part of this journey, inviting uh, me to speak here. It's a privilege to be with you and privilege to be part of the partnership launch of what we're going to be doing together in Thailand. I would encourage you to get involved in CAP as well. They have their Australian office in Newcastle, as do Compassion. And they are a great organization. They're doing some great work in poverty relief in Australia and budgeting and budget management. And yeah, very good organization. I'd certainly encourage you to do that. Well, my presentation, terrific. Um, you know, what we, what we say in those final few days or final few hours of our life can often be the most important or the most profound things that we'll ever say. We often forgive people that should always have been forgiven. We often tell stories that should always have been told. And it's often an opportunity to leave a, a legacy, some words of wisdom. And back a few... It's going to work. I think that's going to... That's going to work. Yeah. This is my grandpa. This is uh, my grandfather, Albert Harrison. I was at his deathbed back in 1974. And he was a soldier in the First World War, British soldier. He was, in, he lied about his age. He was 17 at the time. He wanted to join up. He wanted to join the British Army. And as he was leaving the north of England, his mother gave him this small prayer book to give him some level of protection as he was off to France. Now, my grandfather, my grandpa, never ever spoken about, never spoke about the events of the First World War. It was kind of a taboo subject in our household. He just would never go there. He would never share those stories until those final hours of his life. And he was speaking about what it was like to, to leave England and off he went to France and what it was like in the trenches. He was in the third battle of Ypres, the battle for Passchendaele, exactly 100 years ago. We're celebrating the uh, centenary of that event. It was an horrendous battle. He spoke about the relentless rain, the mud, how their feet were literally rotting on their legs because of the, the constant wet weather they were enduring. The shell fire, the mustard gas, he said it was just horrendous. There was 140,000 British soldiers killed in that particular battle. There was one British soldier killed for every five centimeters of German territory they captured. He spoke about how he was climbing out of a rat hole and how he had this little prayer book in his top tunic pocket and he was struck by a German bullet. The bullet was ricocheted off the front of the prayer book. Instead of going into his body cavity, it went into his arm. The little prayer book from his mum literally did save his life and you can actually see the path of the bullet across the 
this lit across the leather, and you can even see the, the blood-stained pages inside. So obviously a, a very precious memory. And as I say, he never ever spoke about these events until those final few hours of his life. And it made me think about, what, what did Jesus say? What was Jesus' last message to us? What were those last thoughts that he wanted to get off his chest before he passed from this earth? He knew he was going to die. It was all laid out. It was all planned. He knew he only had a short amount of time. And this is what he said to us two days before he was crucified. And it's captured in Matthew 25, verse 37. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. I think you can see Jesus' heart in that. His heart for the poor, the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, and the naked. Of the 16,500 children under the age of five that will die this very day from preventable causes. 16,500 kids die every day from preventable causes. They die today, they die Monday, they die Tuesday, they die Christmas Day, they die Boxing Day. Jesus' heart goes out for the little 10-year-old Nepalese girl who will be trafficked across the border of Nepal and sold into the brothels of Calcutta. She'll be fed a cattle steroid called Oridexone to make her more curvaceous, more attractive to the 10 or so clients that she'll be servicing in that brothel each day. Jesus' heart goes out for the young boy who's a slave in a cocoa plantation in West Africa so we can enjoy cheap chocolate. And Jesus' heart goes out to the young mom breaking rocks by hand in a quarry in Uganda who I'll introduce you to in a moment. It's going to work? Yes. Compassion at a glance. We've been around for 65 years. We actually started in the midst of the Korean War, so 1952. Uh, a young army pastor was walking through the streets of Seoul one freezing cold winter's morning, and in the distance, he saw what he thought was a garbage truck collecting garbage. And as he approached this garbage, he realized they weren't collecting rubbish. They were collecting dead children, children that were literally freezing to death in the shop doorways of Seoul during that Korean War. And he was so affected by what he saw, he started compassion. By the end of 1952, we had 35 kids in an orphanage in South Korea. Praise God, we now have over 1.9 million kids in Compassion's program. We work ex exclusively through local churches, just like Chris said. We believe that the church, the local church, is God's answer to ending extreme poverty. So we work through a network of 7,500 local churches. There's an organization called Charity Navigator, and it's an independent organization that looks at the financial performance of 5,500 charities every year. For the last 14 consecutive years, Compassion has been in the top 1% of those 5,500 charities because of the way that we steward the money that you give us. We want every one of those 1.9 million kids to be able to hear and respond to the gospel. And one child every four minutes chooses to follow Jesus through his Compassion's program. 
one child every four minutes, somewhere between 125,000 and 160,000 kids are saved because of Compassion's program each year. This is where we work. We work in all of those green countries, all through Southeast Asia, like Thailand, the Philippines, Indonesia, the subcontinent, East Africa, West Africa, Central and South America, 25 of the poorest countries on planet Earth. Why do we do what we do? One in nine people on planet Earth live in extreme poverty. That means that they try and exist in a household that earns less than $1.25 per day. So one in nine people live in such a situation. 300 million children will go to bed hungry tonight. This is despite there being enough food to feed every man, woman, and child. It was Gandhi that says, look, there's enough to meet everybody's need, but there's not enough to meet everybody's greed. There's still 29 million slaves. It's that, that little girl in that brothel in Calcutta. And yes, 16,500 kids under the age of five will die each day from preventable causes. They die from stupid things like diarrhea because they don't have access to fresh water, or from measles because they didn't receive a $5 immunization as a child like we do. Are we making progress or are we just throwing good money after bad? We've probably heard all this before. Are we making a difference? Well, back in the 1960s, we used to talk about 55,000 kids dying each day. By, by 1990, we're down to 34,500 kids each day. By the year 2000, 27,000. And by 2015, down to 16,500. So we are making enormous progress, but it's still a stupidly big number. We all know what this is. This is September 2001. When the planes went into the Twin Towers that September morning, there was 2,977 people killed. Conservatively speaking, in the, what, 16 years or so since the Twin Towers fell, there's been 130 million kids under the age of five died from preventable causes. It's something we don't hear about. We don't hear about it because there are 130 million black kids. They're not white. If they were white kids, it would be in every newspaper, every news bulletin, every internet website. But it's something we just don't hear about. It's a silent epidemic. In famine situations, organizations like Compassion use this simple tool. It's called a, a MUAC band. And you see it in use there. And we use it in a, as a triage tool. So we'll line up kids. And we use this to determine their level of malnourishment. We measure this portion of their arm, their mid-upper arm circumference. So this here is a five-year-old child with severe malnourishment, about an inch in diameter, a little larger than my thumb. So when we talk about kids being skin and bone, they literally are skin and bone. The, the, the UN estimate at the moment there's about 275,000 kids in southern Sudan that are suffering from extreme malnourishment. So what does Compassion do about this? What, how do we work? How, how does child sponsorship work? Well, let me illustrate with this story here. This is Johnny Alam. He's a, a young boy who I met in a, in a slum community in Calcutta in 2012. He lives a few blocks away from where Mother Teresa used to work. He lives here. This is a, a disused British horse stable. When the British pulled out in 1948, the homeless of India moved into this building. Uh, homeless of Calcutta, and they subdivided, uh, if you like, the small 
the, the horse stables and turned it into this sort of labyrinth of single room dwellings. This is the building that, that, that Jani lives in, as I say, 300 years old. Uh, it was condemned by the authorities in Calcutta some 30 years ago. There was a, a large portico on the front of the building. The portico collapsed and killed about 25 people that were living under that portico. In that building and the surrounding community lived 10,000 people. So those 10,000 people shared two toilets and one tap. This is Calcutta, 2012. Two toilets and one tap for 10,000 people. The tap there you can see in the foreground, and it runs for two hours a day, and it's a different two hours each day depending on when they get electricity into this piece of Calcutta, this portion of Calcutta. There's Johnny there on his right, one of our compassion kids with his mom, Shamina, and his sister, Dolly, in their single room. And uh, the, the bed was specially manufactured to fit into the small space, and I'm standing on the bed to take this photograph. Dolly and Shamina sleep on the bed, and Johnny sleeps on the little piece of concrete floor that's left. He said, God specially made me just to fit in the little bit of space available. He said when it rains, which it does a lot of in Calcutta, all the, the sewage and effluent from the surrounding community washes down into their home. Shamina explained she'd go to the market at the end of the day, and, and in the market there'd be women selling chicken meat. And these women would yeah, kill the chickens and skin them and throw the, the skins and the feathers and the entrails of the chickens into bins, and they would sell the prepared chicken meat. But she could never afford to buy the clean prepared chicken meat. So she'd go at the end of the day and she'd buy the contents of the bin and she'd take that back home and cook up the chicken skins and the entrails just to give the, the kids some level of protein. In that community of 10,000 lived 6,000 kids. Johnny was the first child to get a formal education because he was sponsored by Compassion and there he is in one of his early school photographs. And he would go, at the end of the day, after going to school, he would go back to his community and he'd run little impromptu lessons, little maths and English lessons for the other slum kids to pass on what he learned. He even taught his own parents how to read and write. This is Johnny at age 17 with his mom and sister and his father there. His father passed away not long after this photograph was taken, passed away from malaria complications. And so we, Johnny became the head of the household at age 17. Despite all of that, he excelled at school and he became uh, top his school, got the best marks in his high school, became school captain, and then he got accepted into Compassion's university program. And here he is with his university principal. He did extremely well when he did his first degree. He did a degree in business in this university in Calcutta. He came second out of 1,500 students. He then got the opportunity to go to, to Manchester University in the United Kingdom where he did his master's in international business. Again, he excelled, got distinction, averages, did extremely well in his studies. Now, Johnny could stay in the UK. He could get a fantastic job even in commerce in India. But what he's done, he's actually started his own Christian humanitarian organization to, again to give back to his people in Calcutta. And he runs programs for pavement kids, kids that live on the streets of Calcutta and he provides education and training for these kids and he also provides microfinance, micro loans to women working in prostitution so they can climb out of prostitution so they can get alternative employment and he's got about 100, 150 women in this program 45 of which have already worked their way out of prostitution 
because of the microloans provided by Johnny's organization. While Johnny's been in the, the UK studying, his building collapsed again, like torrential rains. But the people had no other option but just to clear away the rubble and move back into the building. The homeless of Calcutta have got no other options but to live in these circumstances. Now, Johnny's story, the sponsored boy, he's now become a sponsor himself, and he sponsors this little girl in the community where he lives. This little girl lives in a series of sewer pipes, or drainage pipes that were left over by the Calcutta authorities. And here the little girl is with her, her mom, and, and you can see the curvature there of the roof of their home, their sewer pipe. Very, very basic, humble conditions. There's Johnny meeting his sponsor child. While he's been studying in the UK, he's also been working for our sister organization there, Compassion UK, and he had the opportunity to go and do advocacy work and meet British parliamentarians and stress the importance of the British government honoring their commitment to foreign aid. So this boy from the slums of Calcutta has been walking the corridors of power, Britain's the sixth biggest economy in the world. And here he is meeting parliamentarians that sit on their foreign aid board. It was David Cameron, the previous British Prime Minister, said, we will never ever uh, balance the British budget on the backs of the poor and the British have continued to build and grow their foreign aid budget. I've been with Compassion now, as Chris said, about 12 years, and I've traveled extensively in that time. And this is a scene from uh, a quarry in southern Uganda, on the Ugandan-Rwandan border. And it's a whole bunch of women. When we passed, it was about 7.30 in the morning. They were all hard at work. And basically, their job is to break big rocks into little rocks to make gravel for road construction. No machinery, everything done by hand, everything done by this bunch of women. No protection from the sun, no safety equipment. It's just hard work. And the rock was kind of hard, flinty rock. And as we, I was standing there taking these photographs, I could feel the kind of shards of rock coming away. There was, didn't have any gloves, didn't have any goggles. It was just hard, dangerous work. And a shard of rock had gone into this young mom's eye and her child was, yeah, it's just hot, dusty, dirty, backbreaking work. And wherever you see mothers like that working in a country like Uganda, you see their children working alongside them. Children denied an education. School fees in this part of Uganda would probably be about $10 per term but beyond the reach of families like this. So they just work alongside their parents. We just spoke, we spoke to this young mom, and she explained that they work from 7 in the morning till 7 in the evening, and they work seven days a week. They don't have any weekends, they don't have public holidays, they don't have roster days off, so pretty much seven days a week. And she said, on a good day, we fill five of those tubs, the yellow tub that's on her head. She said, we fill five of those tubs with gravel. And she said that... For that, we get 20 cents, 20 cents for working in those conditions. Photograph of her child sheltering in the folds of her skirt. A similar sort of story from India. This is Perimere with her three children. I met her in, in southern India again in, a, in a, a quarry situation. Selvam is 11 when this photograph was taken. He was one of our sponsored kids. Perimere was 31. And I took this photograph. 
At the age of 19, Harry May, was, her husband, left her, left her with the three kids and also left her with a debt of 35,000 rupees, about $700. It was a debt she would never be able to pay off. So she became indentured to the quarry owner. Basically, she became what the UN term a modern-day slave. So each day she tries to pay off this debt, as I say, a debt she'll never be able to pay off, a debt that becomes transferred to her kids, so the kids inherit the debt on her death. So there they're all working on the side of this quarry. Very humble conditions, you can see there, that's their home that they live in. But as I say, Selvam was sponsored by Compassion, and on this particular trip to southern India, we had Selvam's sponsor with us, Paula, a lady from Perth, a 74-year-old pensioner. And this lady from Perth wrote a check for $1,000. With that $1,000, we were able to pay off the $700 debt. And there's the receipt, basically their passport out of slavery, their passport into freedom. And with the remaining $300, we set up Perry May in her own business as a seamstress. And you can see there the sewing machine that we bought her, some startup materials, trained her as a seamstress, so she's now running her own business in that community, no longer enslaved in that quarry, all for $1,000. This is a photograph I took in the genocide memorial in Rwanda. I've been to Rwanda now some five, five or six times. And the, the Rwandan genocide was the fastest ever genocide to hit planet Earth. Between April and July 1994, there was a million Tutsi killed by their Hutu countrymen. 275,000 Tutsi are buried just in this one memorial in central Kigali. You know, if Rwanda's greatest export had been oil and not bananas, it would have been a different story. It was a genocide that was ignored by the West. We didn't do anything. We spent days and weeks arguing over whether the term genocide was the right thing to describe what was happening. Meanwhile, 10,000 people per day were being killed in Rwanda. We went in 2009, I was there, January 2009, I was there with a group, and it was the time that Barack Obama was being sworn in as America's first black president. And we decided we wanted to watch this historic occasion, and we went to a colleague's house, and we're all huddled around watching CNN, watching Barack Obama during his swearing-in ceremony, and next to me stood this young girl, Christine Yuase. And we're watching Barack, and we're sort of chatting, and I'm trying to get to understand her story. They all have a story. There was 8 million people in Rwanda at the time. A million were killed. Many others were, were raped and injured. And, and Christine explained that she was Tutsi. She was four at the time of the genocide. She was what the, the Hutu called cockroaches. And she said, I was only little, I was only four, and, and my mom was scared I was going to be left behind. There was going to be a time where we would be tracked down by the Hutu militia, and we would have to run for our lives. And I was just too little. So my mom strapped me to her back. And she said, for about two weeks, we hid under a neighbor's bed. Actually, a Hutu neighbor. And they hid under this Hutu neighbor's bed. And she said, finally, the Hutu found them. They dragged her out from under the bed, and they shot my mom through the head said, later that same day, my, my dad was driving a bus in the hills behind Kigali. 
he too was pulled off that bus and he was macheted to death by the Hutu militia. <clears throat> so within a 24-hour period, Christine was left an orphan. But you know, Christine had a different plan. Sorry, God had a different plan for Christine's life. And unlike the United Nations, unlike the West, compassion were there before, during, and after the genocide. And we started to gather up orphans like this, orphans of the Rwandan genocide, and we got them into our child sponsorship program. And Christine's photograph was taken, and it just looked like this, and it appeared on a table just like the one at the back. And somewhere, somewhere in the world, somebody stepped up, a hero stepped up, and decided to sponsor Christine. And because of that sponsorship, we were able to feed her, we were able to clothe her, we were able to treat her for the trauma that she was suffering from. She gave her life to Christ at the foot of her pastor in her church in Kigali. We got her into school, and she excelled at school. And that January night in 2009, she had just started the National University of Rwanda. And I said to Christine, what are, what are you studying? What are you doing? She said, well, I've only been there a week. But she said, I'm studying po politics, political science. And I said, why politics? And she said, because I want to be the minister for human rights in the Rwandan government. And she pointed at the TV and she said, if Barack Obama is good enough to be the leader of the United States, well, I'm good enough to be a minister in the Rwandan government. And I've followed Christine's story since then. That was 2009, went back in 2012, 2013. And we went, and she's just excelled. She excelled through her degree. She got an internship with the Rwandan parliament. She's been working for the Rwandan Development Board. She's got a position now working in the civil service side of the Rwandan Senate, and she is pursuing her political career. And we went to Parliament, and we actually interviewed some parliamentarians, and they said, look, we just can't believe the, the capacity and passion of this girl. She's one of those new generations, those new leaders that are emerging in Africa. Rwanda is now one of the, the lions of Africa. They call them the pride of lions. It's such a stable country. It's a growing country. They have double-digit GDP growth. They've lifted a million and a half people out of extreme poverty, They've created a million jobs just in the last few years. They're doing extremely well. It's probably safer to walk the streets of Kigali now in Rwanda than it would be to walk the streets of Sydney. They've done a remarkable job, and it's because of this emerging leaders. Maybe you're thinking, well, her story's just a pipe dream. Well, this is Margaret McCorha, a former compassion child, being sworn in as a senator in the Ugandan parliament. This picture here is Begwin, former compassion kid, now a congressman in the Haitian parliament. We're this close to getting one of our kids to be president of one of our countries. So we want to launch a partnership with you guys in Thailand. We want you to get engaged in this work and do this sort of transformation in a community in Thailand. Compassion's been around Thailand for a long time. 1970 we started. We got a whole bunch of kids there, 47,000 children, and we worked through 190 plus churches, including these churches. This is where we're look That's a map of Thailand there. So we're looking at this region here, Udon Thani, up on the Lao border. Basically, that's Thailand. You've got um, you got the old um, <laughs> Burma, yeah, Myanmar across here. You've got Laos coming down here, and you've got Cambodia kind of sitting in the bottom here. So Udantani is pretty close to that uh, Thai-Lao border. And we've got a bunch of kids at the back there 
from these projects here, these child development centers, all run by local churches. Udantani is a, a pretty developed town. It's got a good airport. These, are, these particular projects are about 60 kilometers out of Udantani. So it's the opportunity to get involved. All the kids there are from those projects. This is little Sue. So she comes from that community outside of Udantani there. She's been work, waiting more than 430 days for a sponsor, just like Helena. That's too long. We really need to get a sponsor for this little girl. She's six years of age. And it'd be your name that's getting written next to her name in that center of ours at Udantani. You know, I remember sponsoring my first child, a, a little girl from Bangladesh called Kinney. And it was 12 or so years ago. I was on my first compassion trip. And she was a girl that just had a few months to live. She had a severe heart problem. Family couldn't afford to do anything about it. So I stepped in and I sponsored her 48 bucks a month. <clears throat> you know, I didn't have to stop and work out how many pizzas a month that was or how many flat whites or whatever. I didn't have to do the maths. I didn't have to do the budget. I just know there's a child in need and I can do something about it. And I sponsored this little girl called Kinney. She's now a healthy, thriving, surviving 21 or 22-year-old. She wrote me a letter a few years back and she said, Dear Mr. Harrison, thank you for being my sponsor because now I am alive. Doesn't get much better than that, does it? So let's get involved in this. Let's sponsor a whole bunch of children. Have the opportunity to go and travel there, minister with those churches, meet those kids, and you'll be blessed and they'll be blessed. Well, thank you. God bless. We hope you've enjoyed this week's sermon. For more information or to contact us, visit c3church.narara.net.